0: spooksters and welcome back to another episode of three spooked girls it is your girl jessica and as always i am joined by my favorite ghoul friend ever tara hey spooksters we're going to be talking about the osage murders and the birth of the fbi which was a topic i chose and inspired by a book that i bought and then did not read (laughs) yet yet but then listened to a bunch of stuff about it and i'm super excited to read said book but before we get into that, let's talk about our business and our drinks. My friend, what are you drinking this evening?
1: I have uh, my Robert Mondavi Merlot Peruge, And I also have, what is this called? LaCroix? LaCro? LaCroix. 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 I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry. Drink. Old school. There you go. The grapefruit one that everybody hates but me. So I've got that too.
0: Pomplemousse is one of the most, is the like number one flavor and I hate it. I'm like, Ugh. but I don't like grapefruit, like in my defense. But it works because people who buy lacra or any other kind of sparkling seltzer water that's flavored and want to split a case with me, I will take the flavors like lemon because I like lemon and make can have pomplemousse.
1: There you go. So, what did the bell witch pick for us slash what are you drinking?
0: So, I'm drinking water and Canada dry cranberry ginger ale because it's that time of year. people ah! yeah, it is. I saw it at the grocery store yesterday and was like, "You fucking coming home with me. I'm gonna have to have you mail me some. It doesn't exist. What <laughs> to the store and a flat rate box." <laughs> Tally ho, or
1: anybody to our PO box. Just, <laughs> just kidding. You don't have to.
0: <laughs> It'd be really weird if they're like the post office was like, uh, "Ma'am, you have fifteen boxes of soda."
1: <laughs> and uh, disclaimer:
0: that would not be for me.
1: That would be for Intern Matt, and he'd probably cry of joy. And he doesn't know I'm asking for this, but you know,
0: <laughs> uh, Intern Matt. <laughs> I'm not consuming alcohol this evening because I am dealing with a sinus thing. Because we're recording this. On the 14th of November, and I just got back from my anniversary weekend. So I spent more than two days away from <laughs> from Sacramento. And I literally came back and my sinus, my allergies were like, Hey, you forgot we existed. <laughs> and I'm like, I freaking hate you allergies. So I haven't been able to breathe out my nose. Mm. For some reason, alcohol tends to exacerbate the issue. So oh. I, I'm taking a week off. But our dear beloved Kate, the Bell Witch picked a drink it is a sage gold rush cocktail get it because it's osage and then it's about oil which is black gold there you go oh and it was the oil rush i i did this so witty so witty kate is excited tonight (laughs) okay so this will make two cocktails this recipe right here it is so you have to make the honey sage syrup first, which is a half a cup of honey, a half a cup of water, one ounce of fresh sage leaves, stems removed. So just like run your fingers down the stem and they'll, all the leaves will fall off. It's, it's pretty simps. Then the sage gold rush cocktail is four ounces of bourbon, three ounces of the honey sage simple syrup three ounces of freshly squeezed juice, and it's about two lemons. The instructions are you make the syrup by combining the honey, the water, and the sage and leave on medium heat in a saucepan. As soon as the mixture starts to steam, turn it off, steep the leaves for about 10 minutes, then strain into a jar or a bottle and then um, press the leaves firmly to release all the juices in there. Um, And then make the cocktail in a cocktail shaker and then strain over ice. So kind of like an old-fashioned. There you go. You definitely need an old-fashioned glass. So I just thought that was clever because the black gold, if we're going Beverly Hillbillies. So there was a lot of thought put into this, but yeah. And I wish I could taste it, but I just really want to be able to breathe later today. (laughs) They're like, Jessica died because she drank. That would be about right. (laughs) Okay, so... Let's get our down to business and then we will begin. As always, check the show notes because it has a beautiful, wonderful link tree that Tara has created and put everything that's important in, in the Three Sweet Girls realm in there. It has our website. It has our Facebook. It has our Facebook group. It has our Instagram, our Twitter, our merch store. Am I missing anything, Tara? Yeah, I think
1: that's it. We got our website, the socials, um Patreon, all that great stuff in the link tree. So yeah, they can they can find us everywhere.
0: If you want to help support the show, you can definitely head over to our Patreon and become a patron. we got some really cool things for as little as a dollar a month. You get extra bonus episodes. Each of our tiers have really awesome things. I know we're launching new and cool things. We have a current goal of getting 50 patrons, and then I'm going to go and slaughter movie reviews for you twice a month because I love you guys so much, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So definitely check that out. The other thing we want to talk about before we get into this case today is studio. If you know anything, Tara and I are like junkies when it comes to listening to things. We listen to podcasts all the time. We love music. And for my job, I'm on the phone all the time. So if you're looking for a really great headset, Or Bluetooth or earphones, we definitely recommend Studio. I use my Studio Tall earbuds every day at work. It makes it super simple. They're lightweight. Sometimes I forget they're in there, (laughs) and then I look around for them, and people are like, "They're in your ear," which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But it's really great, and they're really cute. Like Tara and I have a matching pair because you know we extra we. Bestie and basic, like that. I like that you said extra. I said basic, but they're really cute and they have like a little rose gold button and they come with a charging case, which is fantastic. And then just listen later in the episode and we're going to give you more specs and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I think that concludes it for our business today. Yes,
1: yes. We're going to take a quick promo break for some pod friends and our other preferred affiliate. Check it out and we'll be back in just a second.
0: Well hello my friends, this is CK from the Murths and Monsters podcast. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray, mortals. as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? <clears throat> sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, sláinte, your good health. Let's face it, most of us are usually glued to our phones. So what if I told you we have a great idea to connect you to friends, family, and your inner detective?
1: Hunt a Killer is the fastest-growing murder mystery subscription game that puts you in the mind of a detective.
0: You'll shift through piles of documents, evidence, auto-recordings, and case files, eliminating suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer.
1: Hunt a Killer gets you talking and having fun together, whether it's game night or
0: date night. And if you're a detective that prefers to work solo, Hunt a Killer is built so that you can choose how you want to play. With thousands of online community members and
1: 2,000 five-star reviews on Trustpilot, it's no wonder Fast Company named them as one of the most innovative entertainment companies of 2019.
0: Plus, a part of the proceeds of every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation to help fund cold case investigations. John E. Douglas, the FBI profiler who inspired the Netflix show Mindhunter, is the chairman of the board of this nonprofit foundation. It's the perfect activity for fall and winter,
1: and you don't even have to leave your house. Hunt a Killer is an ideal murder mystery party game. Right now, just for our listeners, you can go to Hunt a Killer and use the code SPOOKED for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure to use our discount code SPOOKED, that's S-P-O-O-K-E-D, for 20% off your first box and to show support for us here on 3 Spooked Girls.
0: It's not just about catching the murder. It's about the friends you make along the way. Okay, Jess is going to kick us off here. Thank you. So I'm going to give a brief history of the Osage tribe. And I just kind of want to put a little caveat there. I actually have family members who are part of this tribe. It's not like a direct line. It would be like my grandfather. It's his first cousins. Like So his aunt is actually part Osage or she actually is full Osage. So I have family members in this particular tribe. Native American nation. So I feel very connected to this story. And a lot of the places here my dad grew up around. So it's a little near and dear to my heart. And then obviously, I'm excited because it launched the FBI, which is like, I loves me some FBI guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So the Osage tribe, or is known as the People of the Middle Water, was a Midwestern Native American tribe that developed in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys around 700 BC. So, like, they were here a lot longer than we were. A shit ton longer. They migrated west of the Mississippi due to wars because apparently these tribes from, like, Pennsylvania and New York came down and they fought and then they moved to west of the Mississippi. They were like one of the bigger tribes. And I learned something new. The word Osage is a French term used um, and it translates into the word warlike. So they were, you know, warriors. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So up until about the 19th century, the Osage tribe was the dominant power in the region. But westward expansion happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to call it out because I'm a white person. White Americans were dicks and moved people out of their place. Literally, if you don't know what the Trail of Tears is, it's a very sad story. So, essentially, what they were is that they were in this area. The Osage Nation controlled the area between the Red Rivers, the Ozarks, to the east, and the foothills of the Wichita ma- Mountains and a little south. Basically, because of westward expansion and like statehood was happening and allotment was happening, they were being kind of pushed out. So because they were primarily dependent on like nomadic buffalo and their agriculture, they really needed a place to live. So in the 19th century, when they were forced out of Kansas, they made a very smart decision, in my opinion. At the time, and please don't at me, at the time, they called this area of land they were moving to, Call it was called Indian Territory. And they bought this land for super cheap. They bought it for 70 cents an acre. Wow. Right? I'm like, oh, good. Good good for them. They got a deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the issue with this land was that it was very rocky and people thought it was going to be very barren. So no one really wanted it. And I mentioned a word a minute ago called allotment. And there was an allotment act, which is basically when a state becomes a state like people who are already there have to kind of like concede to statehood that the state is going to be the state. So they were they had moved from Kansas to now what is present day Oklahoma, particularly well, now it's the where the now it's called the Osage Nation, but it's kind of the um northeastern part of Oklahoma, about an hour and a half northeast of Tulsa, I wanna say. If I am doing my math right or Northwest, I can't remember. I'm bad at geography. We've explained this before. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) I've been there, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. if I had to like compass it, I'd be really bad at it. So anyways, in 1906, they started the Allotment Act for Oklahoma. At the time, there was 2,228 registered Osage members of the nation. And they kind of thought about it. One of the last nations to sign this. They actually got a pretty sweet deal. They had a really intelligent chief. His name was Chief James Bighart. And in 1907, he secured not only four times the acreage that other tribes were getting. Most of them were getting about 160 acres. He got about 654 or 57 acres. But he also did the smartest thing ever, which was that he retained the communal mineral rights and he didn't just do that. He didn't just go. So basically, that means like anything under the surface, right? But he also did it that it is a head right or head rights. And how head rights work is that, like, say Tara and I were sisters and we had a parent. When that parent dies, we cannot sell off that. I mean, we could sell off the share, but like it wouldn't be like sold off. It would come directly down into the family. No one other than our family. Could have it. Okay. Which is pretty freaking smart. hmm Because what ended up happening is they found crude oil. Mm. So here's the man who had the wherewithal to be like, sure, you can be a state that you can technically claim it. But no, no, no. We're going to retain the mineral rights and everything under the surface belongs to us. And they actually became the first in the United States. It was called an underground reservation. Which is kind of like, I didn't know that. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. So basically, in the 1920s, people of the Osage Nation went from like living in kind of traditional housing to being like millionaires overnight. Wow. Because it literally started trickling in and they got some money and then all of a sudden they were getting more and they had so much money. Now, not to be cut out of this deal we were kind of dicks again. They made a decision that every single Osage tribal member who had a head right was given a person, a white person, to manage that for them. I was listening to David Gran, who wrote the book Killers of the Flower Moon, which is what inspired this case for me. Um, and he was saying it wasn't even just like kind of racist. And I'm like paraphrasing. He's like, it wasn't even just kind of rightness. It was just blatantly racist. Like, nope, you are a Native American. You don't know how to spend your money here. Here's this white person who we think is responsible enough to have your money. Holy hell. Like, we're talking one of the greatest injustices of like all time racist wise, because I mean, one of them, I should say. But like, literally, you wanted to go buy toothpaste. You had to ask your advisor, hey, can I have money to go buy my toothpaste? You want to buy a car? I got to go with you to buy a car. And let me tell you that these people weren't just like, you know, okay, let's write check. They were a little bit of embezzlement going on, like a smidge. Also, and we'll come because obviously we're talking about murders. So David, who wrote the book, he was saying that when he was doing research, they would have like the way that the Osage Nation would write is they would write someone's name and then they would just write dead next to them after they passed away. Not like died of like head wound, died of cold, died of tuberculosis like they didn't write anything like that it just died and he was saying that he would come across pages where it would be like this white person's name and then it would be like five osage tribal members and they would just be like dead 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 and it would be like they'd have the dates there and they'd be like within a few years of each other so that kind of brings us to this particular story there was a woman by the name of molly burkhart she was a good woman. She, you know, she she had her money. I loved the way that David described her. It was great. He was, like, talking about how, like, she, when she was born, she's born in more of, like, a traditional, like, nation time. And then by the time she was old enough and having her own children, she was in, like, this modern flapper era. And so she literally not only straddled two cultures because she married a white man, but she straddled, like, two cultures In the time span of, like, development of a particular nation, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. So Molly was one of four sisters. And on May 27th, 1921, she realized that her sister, Anna Brown, was missing. So people went out and they searched for her. And basically they found her in a remote ravine in Osage County which is the county in which they reside in, so the Osage County, and she had a headshot wound. But because they couldn't find the killer, they ruled her death an accident. Um, Tara, how is a headshot wound an accident if she's left in a ravine all by herself?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not.
0: You don't accidentally
1: walk into a bullet or, you know.
0: (laughs) That doesn't happen. No. So they basically said, you don't understand. Anna was a good time girl. She liked to go get her drink on. She liked to party. So she was out and about. And this must have just happened. Okay. Okay. Osage County law enforcement. Okay. <laughs> it's funny if I say, okay, boomer, because this has like multiple things. If you know, boomer is a, the Oklahoma State boomers. <laughs> never, no, never mind. I'm going to go over here and be like, doo doo doo. It's okay. Anyway, where was I? So on the same day, so we are on May 27th, 1921, Charles Whitehorn, or as he was better known as, as Charles Williamson, was found shot in the back of the head. And he was found in Pahuska. So shout out to the Pioneer Woman because that's where she lives. He was found near Pahuska with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. And guess what, Tara? He is Anna's cousin. So in the same day, Poor Molly has lost her sister and her cousin.
1: hmm
0: Well, Molly's bad streak doesn't go away. Two months later, Molly's mother, her name was Lizzie Q. Kyle, she died. She just stopped breathing. It was suspected that she was poisoned, but again, they had no proof because this was the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So this is 1921-ish. And so her head rights then went to her, her husband who was still living and her two remaining daughters. Oh, I guess Molly was only three, one of three sisters. I apologize. I misspoke earlier. So now these women, these two girls, Um, her, the other daughter's name was Rita and um, her late husband or Lizzie's late husband are fabulously wealthy because they've inherited all of Lizzie's shares on February 6th, 1923. Henry Roanhorse was found in his car on the Osage Reservation with, guess what, Tara? With a gunshot wound to his head. And he was Molly's cousin. Yeah. So at this point, like the family, like Molly's family is like, holy crap, this is happening to us. Mm -hmm. Mind you, there was a lot more happening, but we're going to be focusing on these particular ones. But they're like, Rita's like, oh, my God, I live in the country with my husband, Bill, and we could just get picked off. You know what? I'm moving to Fairfax, which fun fact, that is where my dad was born. So her and her husband, Bill, moved to Fairfax. And on March 10th, 1923, Molly is woken up in the middle of the night because she hears this loud frickin kaboom. And she runs to her window and looks down the street At Rita's house, and it's just a big orange ball of flame because someone had put a bomb under Rita's porch. Rita and her, they're her living like housekeeper servant person, her name was Needy Brookshire, were killed instantly, but Rita's husband Bill died four days later of his injuries in the hospital. So I know, I know what you're thinking, guys. You're like, uh, what's happening here? Because Honest to God, wouldn't you be a little, like, worried if you were part of this family? Right. Everybody you know is dying violently. Very violently. Like, it was, yeah. Because the bomb was later found out to contain five gallons of nitroglycerin, which is, what, TNT? Five gallons. Like, think about, like, watching, like, old-timey movies, and they have, like, one stick of dynamite, and they'd throw it at things, and it would blow this big hole, like... Five gallons of this stuff that um, surprised anyone had a house left. Right? God. So essentially, people were starting to get like, okay, something has to give here. Mm -hmm. Because, again, George Bighart on June 28th, 1923, was dying at home and he was taken by train to the hospital in Oklahoma City by William the King Hale. And his nephew, Ernest Buckhart. And if you're like, Buckhart, that sounds familiar. That's because Ernest is Molly's husband. Mm -hmm. At the hospital, it was suspected that Big Heart had um, ingested some poison through his whiskey. Mm. Which is just a really sad way to die, because I bet he really enjoyed his whiskey. We all do.
1: If you do. If you don't, sorry. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) And if you don't, we're sorry. So... Basically, uh, George is like, you know what I got to do? I got to get my attorney. So he calls his attorney, whose name is William Watkins Vaughn, and he was from Pahuska, And he said, come to the hospital as soon as possible. Vaughn complied and met the two men that night. So no one really knew what they were discussing. But the next morning, Big Heart died and Vaughn boarded a train to return to Pahuska. Basically, let's put it this way. Vaughn never made it back to Pahuska. His attorney's body was found with a skull crushed in beside Ugh. the railroad track in Persing, Oklahoma, which is just five miles south of Pahuska. Isn't it Pahuska? A fun word to say.
1: Sorry. <laughs> you gotta make it light when you can.
0: <laughs> right. Uh-huh. I'm like, I know we're talking about this like dark thing, but every time I say Pahuska, I'm like Pahuska. No, you're That's fine. It's a fun word. <laughs> So, overall, there were 13 deaths of full-blooded Osage men and women. So, earlier when I was talking about the white people who overlooked them, they were called guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, and this took place between 1920 and 1925. By 1925, 60 wealthy Osage had been killed and their land had been inherited or indeeded to their guardians, which were local white lawyers and businessmen and so on, and just people that the government thought should be able to take care of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bad shit. Yeah. hmm At this point in time, people are like, okay, this is really happening. And really, it was because Oklahoma was so new. If you really think about it, it became a state in, like, 06, 07 of the 1900s. And it's we're in the 1920s, so they don't have a ton of resources. So, essentially, this guy, like, went to Washington, D.C. and was like, we need help. And enter. there was this new branch of the government and it was called the Bureau of Investigation Mm -hmm. or the BI, which it was not called at the time, but we're going to call it that because, you know, (laughs) and so it was being run by this new hotshot kid who was 29 and his name was J. Edgar Hoover. And he was basically assembling a crackpot team of Boy Scouts because apparently there were two types of Bureau of Investigators back in the day. You were either a Boy Scout or a Cowboy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. A Boy Scout were these kids who got out of college and were like going into law enforcement, had really their only true kind of resource of knowing how to do anything was from the Boy Scouts type situation. And then <laughs> there were the Cowboys, which we're going to talk about. One by the name of Tom White, he was an entrenched law enforcement. So his daddy was, his granddaddy was, everyone he knows was the law enforcement. His brothers, he became a Texas Ranger. Wow. He was literally a cowboy. He was 6'4", so he a big old dude. And it was said that J. Edgar Hoover did not like people that were taller than him or insubordinate. And basically, J. Edgar Hoover made sure that people wore suits to work. And Tom complied, but he wore his cowboy hat. And he did not care that he was taller. But... Essentially, they called Tom in and he really started looking at the case. He started looking at it forensically for the time, which was basically just fingerprints. And he was really, really trying to kind of get this. And it was kind of like hard because, you know, who the hell is going to really, you know, claim murders? Right. So they start doing all this investigation and, and really it wasn't turning anything up. And in fact, Hoover wanted to shut it down. He was like, this is done. I'm over this type situation. So essentially, because, you know, the Osage Nation did not think that the FBI was doing the greatest. They had their own tribal council and they had someone in mind for these particular slew of crimes. And that would be William Hale. He was a wealthy rancher that lived in the area. And the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in the Department of Interior sent four agents undercover, and they basically were dressed like cowboys, which is kind of weird and it's whatever. But work, they worked undercover for over two years, and essentially, they kind of noticed that there was a crime ring, of pe- like a little petty crime ring around Hale. And since he was known as the King of the Osage Hills, he and his two nephews had migrated up from Texas to work in the oil fields. And his two nephews were named Ernest and Brian Buckhart, which Ernest Buckhart should sound familiar because he was, in fact, Molly's husband. Yes. And Brian Buckhart actually dated Anna Brown, who was Molly's sister. Mmm. All this intertwining is not, not good. Yeah, it's not good at all. So, essentially, Hale had persuaded earnest to marry Molly to get her head rights. They kind of discovered that the immense, the like the really, really wealthy members of the Osage nation were basically getting their royalty pays from the oil field. And these were the people who were dying and they all happened to kind of be related to Molly. Like a lot of them were related to Molly. And this basically made the Osage tribal council, Kind of say to the FBI, we think you really need to look at them. So, because the investigation and the undercover work, the investigators at the FBI charged Hale and his two nephews and one of their ranch hands with the murders of Molly's family. Hale was formally charged for the murder of Henry Roan, who had been killed on the Osage Reservation, making that a federal crime, which is so great because now we have the FBI. It's not great for Henry, my remorse for his family, but these crimes did spur um, the FBI to be launched. So before I hand it over to Tara, we are going to take a quick little break and listen to an affiliate partner of ours. Um, We talked about Studio earlier, so to get those details on our wonderful Bluetooth earbuds, listen up. With its wireless design, minimalistic charging case, and microphones on both sides. The Tolf earbuds from Studio is the perfect match for any adventure. The sophisticated earbuds hold 7
1: hours of battery life, while the portable case offers 4 additional charges for 6 days of standby
0: life. Tolf introduces a new graphene driver for intense clear sound quality. It also is the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology capability with iOS and Android, and is up to 15 meters of range. Studio
1: wants to provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost.
0: And as an added bonus, they provide free worldwide shipping so you international spooksters can enjoy these earbuds too. So head to
1: studio.com or the link in the show notes and use our code SPOOKED GIRLS at checkout for 15% off any purchase.
0: Well, welcome back. And now I'm going to formally hand it over to Tara and she's going to talk or she's going to talk at us. She's going to tell us (laughs) about the trials. Yes, yes.
1: Like Jessica introed for me, it was known that Hale would win and get away with murder because of all of his money and his influence if he was tried at the state level. So if they wanted any chance to put him away, they would have to take it to the federal level, which is what they did. The question they were left with was, how were they going to do that? Well, like Jessica mentioned, this happened on Native American territory, so that did fall into the federal jurisdiction. So Roan's murder was on the Osage allotment, so that would lead the charges for Hale and Ramsey to federal court. The prosecution would be U.S. Attorney Roy St. Louis and the lawyer hired by the Osage Tribal Council, John Lee. I might be saying that wrong, so I apologize. Uh, John was described as a man of, quote, splendid behavior and one of the best. It was someone they would absolutely need in this trial. So in January of 1926, the grand jury would convene. The defense lawyer, (laughs) John Springer, he was a a slick guy, to say the least. He convinced Ramsey to recant his confession of the murders and also wanted witnesses to lie in court. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The ones he couldn't convince to lie, he would just get them drunk or he would threaten them if he thought they would be detrimental to the case. So that's great. Along with that, there's more, he also bribed jurors and he would make these crazy claims that, of course, had no evidence to back it up at all. A pretty well-known example is when Ernest and Ramsey actually signed a statement saying that they had been tortured by federal agents. It was said by an uh, FBI agent later that Springer would do any and everything, legal and illegal, to make sure that they won the case. So. Real stand-up guy guy we got here.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We said it at the same time. (laughs)
1: Saying that at the same time. (laughs) There was also, of course, a lot of drama with the crimes of this, you know, this case. Ernest would be considered Hale's biggest threat, as we come to learn, so much that he was very fearful of his life. So much that the authorities actually took this fear very seriously, and they ended up transporting him in late January out of Oklahoma and even used aliases as an extra precaution at any of the hotels he stayed at, just in case.
0: Oh, witness protection.
1: Yes. (laughs) So then on March 1st, the judge would decide that the Osage allotment wasn't equal to tribal land, so they would have to proceed to state court, if at all. The federal government immediately knew they had to do something or else these guys would just get through the cracks and get away with murder and keep scamming and scamming. Mm-hmm. Keep murdering people. So they immediately put an appeal in with the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, on March 12th, to essentially by time, they held a hearing on the state level for the murder charges. This would be when Ernest would officially flip in court and become a witness for the prosecution. In May, the trials for the bombing of the Smith House at the state level would begin. Again, we go through the dramatic... And false claims from Springer, stating that Ramsey and Ernest had coerced confessions. A quote was, Smith jumped across the room, grabbed me by the shoulders, and shoved a big gun in my face. And also alleging that Tom White said, quote, We'll have you put in the hot chair. Of course, this caught media attention because during this time in the 20s and 30s, you know, the media loved this stuff and they ate it up. It even made it all the way to the Washington Post. This was just another play from Springer. None of that actually happened, and luckily the judge was smart enough to see that, and that judge would end up ruling that as implausible, so that got thrown out. Good for that judge. Right? Exactly. I'm glad they could see through his bullshit. Another noteworthy individual, though not somebody who's innocent themselves, is Kelsey Morrison. He would be a key witness during this trial, and he ended up confessing to his part in the murder of Anna Brown. While doing so, he told how Ernest and himself got Anna drunk and took her about three miles from Fairfax. After this, they took her to the ravine, and he stated that they, quote, gave her a drink, which, you know, means poisoned her or gave her something. And he, Morrison was instructed to shoot Anna, and he said she didn't make a sound. After this, they ended up leaving her there, and he was paid $1,600 by Ernest. Morrison would also discuss the Smith explosion. Apparently, he had been approached earlier before the explosion to go and shoot and kill the family, but he had turned that down.
0: That's good. Kind of like, you know, priorities. One sister is enough. Right, I guess.
1: So then fast forward to June 8th. The trials would actually be sadly interrupted due to the sudden death of Molly Ann Ernest's four-year-old daughter. It just says she died suddenly. I'm not quite sure exactly what happened uh, in the 20s. You know, it could have been TB, it could have been a number of things. Young children died pretty easily. Right. It's true. This must have really affected Ernest because at this time he pretty much flipped the script completely because I think at this time he was still kind of playing games a bit. Mm-hmm. It was said that he decided he was done with. All the bullshit and all the lies he was going along with because he switched his non guilty plea to guilty and discharged his defense team. And he also admits that he followed through with the explosion because Hale was his uncle and that the claims of abuse by the federal agents was all bullshit, that the only duress. That they went through was just being at the interviews for long hours at a time, which that's just how that goes. So, that's nothing, you know, crazy. Mm. Uh, he would receive life in prison on June 21st of 1926. Now, back to Henry's murder. So, in May, it was ruled that it could be tried federally. So, on July 26th in Guthrie, a uh, trial began. The courtroom was said to be heavily guarded because this was a hot case, of course, and they had a hard time finding a jury. Not surprising, but still sad, you know, of course, because of the time period. It was, of course, due to the fact of racism. It was said that many of the white citizens viewed the crimes and the murder similar to, quote, on par with cruelty to animals, which is just disgusting.
0: The fuck? Yeah. White people, we got to get our shit together because we're not, like, out of the woods yet. But, like, at least we're a lot better than that. But, like, cheer Jesus. We both have, you know, a good chunk of family
1: who are Native American as well. So it's not even just being white. And it's not even being white, being this, being that. It's just being a fucking human being. Like, come on. It's true. So. Step off my soapbox now. (laughs) Ernest would, (laughs) I'm like stepping down. Uh, Ernest would plead guilty once again and become the prosecution's star witness. He discussed how Hale was upset with Ramsey during this because he didn't listen to him on how to kill Henry. If he had listened to him and shot him in the front of the head instead of the back, no one would have suspected anything and they would have gotten away with it because their original plan was, uh, It was supposed to look like a suicide, and if he had shot himself in the front, it would have looked like a suicide. No one would shoot themselves in the back of the head as a suicide, and you're an idiot. Paraphrasing, of course. That's a little difficult. Yes. So that was essentially that. If the previous witnesses didn't illustrate enough how Hale was a piece of shit, then uh, our next witness, bootlegger Matt Williams, definitely will for you. So this testimony lays it out there that Hale's motive for killing was for insurance money. He took out a $25,000 policy, which I don't know the math, but that's fucking hefty. Even That's even a decent amount now in today money. Think about in the early 1900s. Right. That's insane. On Henry. And Matt had stated that Hale was already checking himself from a legal standpoint as well. It was said that Hale was asking his lawyers whether pulling off jobs, quote, on Native American land would allow for federal prosecution. And his lawyer, who's obviously a dipshit, said, no, they had no jurisdiction there. You're good. Whatever. Like, you know, interesting enough, an insurance examiner would also testify in court and said that when he straight up asked Hale if he was planning to kill a Native American for his insurance money, that he didn't deny it. His response was a direct quote of. Oh, God, I am. Hell yes. So Hale gave no shits. He essentially thought he was untouchable. That's the impression I'm getting. Yeah. So, of course, though, in court, Hale tries to sing a different tune and deny this because, you know, you're about to go to jail forever. Who wouldn't deny it, I guess? Right. The defense would also try to turn things onto a different person of interest. Roy Bunch, who was having an affair with Henry's wife, and also Curly Johnson, who was conveniently dead. Uh, The theory of Curly was provided by a witness of the name Buster Jarrett. He was lying, of course, because he was someone who was in jail and he was promised by Springer that if he gave this false theory that he would get let out of prison. Oh, So, you know, bullshit. Um, The jury would deliberate for five days with no conclusion. It would come out that at least one juror, possibly more, had been bribed. They had been stuck at a vote of 6 to (laughs) 6 Got it. Yes. So a retrial would take place on October 20th in Oklahoma City. The witness list would stay about the same, but the prosecution would come down harder and be a lot stricter on their cross-examinations because they knew what the fuck was the deal this time. The defense decided to focus on Ernest this time and basically play it like he had killed Henry. But in the end, thankfully, Hale and Ramsey would be found guilty just after a day. Apparently, they acted as if they were stunned at this decision of the court, so boo fucking who! They received charges on first-degree murder with a unanimous vote, so good for them. They were sentenced to prison for the period of their natural lives at Leavenworth, Kansas, where, just a short time later, fun fact, a new warden would be appointed, and that new warden was Tom White. (gasps) Yay! Yay, Tom White! (laughs) And to kind of tie up loose ends here as well, for Kelsey Morrison, he would stand trial in 1927 for the murder of Anna Brown. He did try to recant his confession, but with the testimony of his wife and also Ernest, who was given immunity for this crime. He was found guilty as well. But also, little extra update with Hale and Ramsey, they would appeal their convictions and the Eighth Circuit concluded that the trial took place in the wrong court. They took place in the West District instead of the North District, but they would be tried separately. They were still convicted. Hale was convicted in January of 1929 and then Ramsey would be convicted 10 months later. Hmm. So it kind of drug out, but everybody who's supposed to go to jail went to jail.
0: That's good. Like, that's the that's the bottom line is that, you know, people got their comeuppance.
1: People got what they needed to fucking get.
0: I mean, I kind of think they should have gotten more, but, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, there's
1: people who should fry for certain things, but, you know. You know. You know,
0: you know what you're going to do, what you're going to do.
1: But, um, yeah, that's just kind of... That's how things went down for them. <laughs> right. I was
0: like, I'm actually, like, wildly impressed that they got as much as they got because I'm like, oh.
1: Yeah. Okay. Considering they were wealthy, white, powerful men. They had a lot of money and they could have bribed a
0: lot of people.
1: Yeah. And I think what helped was that the push for federal court versus state court because if it was state court, they would have... Maybe got a slap on the wrist, if anything, Um, because one of the biggest concerns was if they would have even gotten anything, because if they had just went to state, they may have gotten nothing.
0: Right. And this is like one of those things that like it was such a huge pivotal moment in America because it launched literally our gold standard of how we investigate. Mm -hmm. Like the FBI comes out with things far more advanced than like local PD and state agencies. So... I think the great thing about this tragedy, I shouldn't say the great thing, but like the thing that came out of this tragedy is that we have a way now to really catch criminals. But I also am very saddened because if I didn't belong to the Book of the Month Club and I hadn't seen this book and I i like reading and I saw it and then I think I was Googling like kind of the history of it. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that this was to do with the Osage County like the, the Osage Nation, which my my like my dad grew up like he was born in Fairfax, he grew up in Ralston, Oklahoma. Like when we were back there in May, we went up to Pahuska. My uncle drove to Greyhorse, which is where Molly lived, and you know to visit family. And so it's just like it kind of it hit me in a different place because the story isn't known really. It's very much known in their in their world. In fact. There's a story that David talks about, which is that he when he went to this, he went to the Osage Tribal Museum and he sees this picture and it's like clearly like cut on the end. Like it's a big panoramic, but this panel is missing. And so he asked the curator, like, what's going on with this? And she goes, oh, because the devil was standing there and Hale went from being the king of Osage to the devil of Osage. And they literally, they were taking a picture of, like, all of the investigation and the trial, not the trial, but like, the investigation and people trying to help with the murders and everything, and Hale is there. And they literally cut him out, and it was such an interesting thing, and, you know, they cut him out because they want to remember what happened, but they don't want to look at the devil himself, and that's who he is to them. And um, that was kind of a an interesting awakening for me about this case is that we often talk about how the survivors are the ones who have to continue on, but this is an entire nation of individuals who have this unique story of what happened to them, but no one really knows it. Yeah. That's my soapbox.
1: No, I think it's an important it was an important story to share. So I'm glad we're doing it this
0: week. Me too. That and I get to say Pahuska. <laughs> so if you guys are interested and want to read the book with me. I'll give it a couple of weeks so you guys because you can find it on Amazon and then we'll talk about it in Flick if you head over there and I'll open up a channel and we can do it by chapter by chapter. That way we can go slow. So it's not like a huge time commitment. If you just want to read one chapter a week, we'll, we'll discuss it. I am excited to do that. If you guys want to just let me know. I think that's all for us this week. As always, check out the show notes, check out all of our fun stuff. And um, we will see you next week. Thursday. That's right. We'll see you Thursday. I don't know why I always say next week because it's literally always Thursday. (laughs) It's all right. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye.